0: Our text for this morning, 2 Timothy 1, 8-12. Let's read this together in unison. Please join me. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a teacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed." And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to this text and it is in our mind to ask you to enable us, to strengthen us, to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. He invited his readers to such spirit-empowered imitation Father, help us to learn from this apostle who was inspired by the Spirit to write these things for our benefit. Father, we are far from who we need to be when it comes to suffering for the sake of the gospel. And so I'm asking you to take us all beyond ourselves with this text. Help us to understand things we don't typically understand. Help us to be able to speak of things and to hear things that we have not yet experienced the way we ought to and should have and will. Father, thank you for your spirit who indwells us, who reveals Christ to us, who reveals the glory of God to us. We want to see you. We want to know you. We want to love you. We want to trust you. We want to be confident in your power. We ask that you would work through this text in our hearts to that end. We pray for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Second Timothy is Paul's final letter to his son in the faith. And you know that. We've talked about this when we began. Let me just do a really brief review of the letter of 2 Timothy, in that we need to understand that this letter is full of urgency. And this is full of urgency because this is, this is Paul's last letter. He's writing this to his apostolic legate, Timothy. And it's largely filled with this urgency because of the circumstances that surround it. First of all, the Apostle Paul has been arrested. He is in prison for the last time. He's in the Mamertine prison in Rome. This is not a prison where people go to live a long time and then possibly get out on parole. This is the prison prison of death row. There's one level to hold people for a short time, a lower level in which people die or are taken out to be martyred, decapitated, and so on. This is it for the Apostle Paul on this earth. And so he feels this great urgency to pass on to Timothy, his son in the faith, what is most important. Timothy, on the other hand, feels burdened beyond his strength by the ministry that has been entrusted to him. He's grieved by Paul's departure. He's facing Christian persecution. He's dealing with Problems in the church. This is this the first century. He's overwhelmed by his own personal weakness and fears, and so Paul is writing this letter because Paul is keenly aware that God has appointed Timothy. He was there when the prophecies were made about Timothy, when the elders laid their hands on Timothy, and he received gifting and the appointment to to the ministry. He's aware of God's appointment of Timothy to the work to the churches, for the sake of the gospel, for the honor of God in the world. And Timothy's divine appointment is critical in Paul's mind because he's leaving. Paul is leaving the earth. And so through this letter, Paul is spiritually laboring to prepare Timothy, to prepare the man for what's coming, to preserve the gospel in the world through Timothy even, in his teaching. He's wanting to perpetuate godly ministry and for the praise of Christ. Now, one of the important elements, one of the most important elements of Timothy's preparation that Paul takes up in this letter is how to endure suffering for the sake of the gospel. This is a major theme in this second letter. You will see the theme in every chapter referred to. I want, you to point out, I want to point out to you some of these references first. Two of the verses are in the text that we're going to look at this morning. Look at verse 8. He says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but what? Timothy, I'm inviting you to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Isn't that an interesting command? Share the suffering of the gospel. Share this. Take your share in the suffering of the gospel. Verse 12. Paul explains that his ministry with the gospel is why he suffers as he does. Chapter 2, verse 3. Share in suffering, Timothy, as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 9. Remember Jesus Christ, verse 8 says, Risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Chapter 3, verse 11. Timothy, you have followed my persecutions, my sufferings. Chapter 4, and verse 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And in our text for this morning, the main idea really truly comes right here in verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering. So if I could summarize the main point here for these verses I would say it this way, simply to you as our our body of Christ. Do not be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel. Again, I find this so interesting because it's actually a command. Share the suffering. That should make you wonder, well, how do I share in the suffering for the gospel? Don't be ashamed. Before we dig deeper into this text this morning, I wonder if we truly realize how much we need this text. I want to to reason with you a little bit. I want you to, to not feel so distant from this text. Does a text about suffering shamelessly for the sake of the gospel sound like one that you can apply to your life? I think of first, or Second Timothy chapter three, verse 12, and you can turn there. I have it written right here in my notes. I'm going to read it to you. It says, it's a riveting verse. Second Timothy 3:12 says, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." I don't know of a more convicting verse than that. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Now to be persecuted in that verse means anything from being mistreated to being hostily chased for the sake of your life. All of those meanings reasonably fall within the range of that word, persecuted. And in this context, it is persecution on account of being a bearer of the truth and a speaker of the truth especially the gospel. So if Paul says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be at least mistreated on account of the truth, what does it imply then if we have never experienced mistreatment on account of the truth? What does that mean? One of two things must it must imply. One, either you're not desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, or You're not actively speaking the truth of the gospel to others. As Jesus put it, you are living with your candle under a bushel. That convicts me. I hope it convicts you as well. That verse is profoundly piercing. Can you see the truth of that? If that verse means what it says, and I'm not experiencing that, that must mean that I'm not living a godly life, or I'm not actively speaking the gospel in the community. But if, as Paul says, you are desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, and you are speaking the truth of the gospel to those around you, you will, at some point, face mistreatment. Maybe not every day, but it will happen. If it hasn't already. It's inevitable. It's impossible to be speaking the truth and living a life that reflects the transforming power of the truth and not experience mistreatment from the world. If you are accurately speaking the gospel, the world will not like it if they're not already being worked on in their heart by the Holy Spirit. So if the world likes your message and they're living worldly, then maybe you're not speaking the gospel as it truly is. This is what Jesus taught us so clearly, especially in the upper room discourse. If they hated me, they'll hate you. If we're living like Christ, if we're speaking His truth, it doesn't mean we go out and intend to draw this kind of mistreatment by a horrible attitude. We just have to love like Christ and speak His words, and it'll happen. I mean, No one could be more loving and truth-speaking than Jesus And what was his life like? right? So you see how this is unwaveringly true. And this is why this text is immediately applicable for our lives. This text will help us to be able to suffer for the sake of the gospel without shame. Or, I trust in this text, as we talk about it together, it will stir us to see the urgency of desiring to live that godly life in Christ Jesus and speak the truth. Of the gospel as Christ gave it to us. As children of God who are living in truth and speaking the truth, we will have already needed this text. We will need it now or we will need it soon. And what's more, all of us, I think, can agree that we are seeing a continuous moral decline of our country, of our culture, of our community. I mean, we are following the chorus of Romans 1 right on schedule. I hope you realize that. And that's, that's true of our country. It's been true of many other countries in the world ever since day one, right? This is, this is not uncommon in our world, but we're experiencing right now in a way that, that, that we haven't felt before. And that means something. We're well on our way to becoming a society much like first century Rome, Right? It's coming fast, and, and much of it's already here. Therefore, we must all be prepared to shamelessly suffer for the sake of Christ, for the gospel, to live godly lives in Christ before the watching eyes and listening, watching, watching eyes and listening ears of the world. In other words, we need to prepare. Do you feel that? We need to prepare for this. We need to be ready for what will happen. It's coming very quickly, just as Jesus did with his disciples. I love that, how Jesus gathered his disciples in the upper room, and he told them, he said, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen before it happens, so that when it does, you'll be ready. That's that's Christ. That's Christ's ministry to us. And that's what this text can can do for us. It can prepare for us for what's coming. We need that. We need to be prepared by the Word of God. I want to begin by familiarizing us with this text this morning, and then we'll, we'll come to the main and our teaching outline for today very soon. Let me give you a bit of a textual outline, I guess. This isn't my teaching outline. It's just kind of a, a way of navigating this text. First, we see Paul's exhortation to Timothy. And that's in verse 8. We see this exhortation, as I already pointed out to you. Don't be ashamed of the testimony, but share in suffering. Don't be ashamed. Share in suffering. And it's, a, it's that double exhortation. <clears throat> and we see that in numerous places here. We also see how Paul talks about this embarrassment, this shame. Don't be ashamed. In uh, verse 16 as well, May the Lord grant mercy to, to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was what? He was not ashamed of my chains. This text points us to the feeling, the sense of shame in speaking the gospel. Do you ever feel that way? It means to be embarrassed for various reasons. To be embarrassed, to feel ashamed. In Mark chapter 8, verse 38, listen to Jesus' words. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. There's a sobering warning from Christ. Jesus Christ spoke of the example of that sort of Shame in John chapter 12, verses 41 through 43. There were actually Pharisee leaders of of the Jews who embraced Christ and believed in Him, and yet they were afraid of making that public because they were afraid they were going to be put out of the synagogue. They were going to be rejected by the other Pharisees. And so they loved the glory that came from man more than the glory that came from God. Do you see how this works? That It's so easy to be ashamed of the gospel for the human heart. Ashamed of Christ's testimony. That's another way of talking about the gospel. The, the message of salvation. The, the message that explains the historic acts of Jesus Christ by which we are saved. The testimony about our Lord. The gospel. It's also possible to be ashamed of Christ's people. So Christ's Message, Christ's people. Paul says, Don't be ashamed of our Lord's testimony, nor of me, his prisoner. Can you imagine how Timothy might have been ashamed of association with Paul? Everybody knew Paul. Right? Not everybody liked Paul. right? We know that from, from many letters in the New Testament. He was, he was looked down upon by so many. Why? For his association with Christ. His boldness to speak the truth is now he's in prison. And maybe, Paul, maybe Timothy felt afraid of associating with Paul for fear that the Roman government would make that association and put him in prison as well. Paul says, don't be, afraid, don't be ashamed of the message of the gospel, the name of Christ. Don't be ashamed of the people of God. Do you ever feel those temptations to shame? being associated with believers, a certain group of believers, being associated with the person of Jesus Christ and the message of the Gospel. Paul says, don't be ashamed. Share in suffering. And then Paul launches into this explanation to Timothy. So we have the exhortation. We have this explanation to Timothy in verses 9 and 10 where he where he delineates God's saving power and the glory of God revealed in the gospel. We're going to get into detail on that later, but that's, that's verses nine and 10. We'll notice all that God, our Savior, has done to rescue us. We'll notice the saving actions of God. You can just go through this section and, and look at all of the actions that are attributed to our Savior. He saved us. He called us. He, he gave us Christ He manifested his grace he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel it's a glorious glorious statement that embodies the gospel for which paul is suffering for which timothy is to share in suffering as well and the final part of this of this section so we have paul's exhortation to timothy we have paul's explanation of the gospel of timothy then we have paul's example he points to himself not in pride Not in condescension toward Timothy. He wants to to make a way for Timothy to follow. For which I was appointed. This gospel that I just explained to you here. I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher. And that's why I suffer the way I do. Paul's shameless suffering for the gospel is explained here. He was a preacher. That's the word for herald. He he saw himself, and rightly so, as the king's herald riding in on the horse into the town square saying, here ye, I have a message from the king. That's a preacher. He was an apostle. He was one who delivered the gospel message having heard it directly from Christ. And he was a teacher of the gospel. He explained the gospel. He applied the gospel to God's people and helped them to learn how to live it out by exhorting them. To do so. Paul had a complete calling to advance the gospel. No wonder he suffered the way he did, right? This was his life 24-7. He devoted himself completely to it. That's why he was single. He gave himself to it. You remember the Apostle Paul's calling in Acts chapter 9. God said, I must speak to Paul and call him and show him what things he must suffer for my name. That's Paul's calling. And so he said, he's not ashamed. By God's grace, Paul was who he was. And he was exhorting Timothy to be that. By God's grace. Paul Paul was who we need to be as we live a godly life in Christ. But most importantly, most importantly, Paul shows here, this, this is the heart of this text. Paul shows here the reasons that he could suffer shamelessly. You have to see this connection. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So he he admits his suffering clearly. That's why he suffers. This is who he's called to be. But he says here, I am not ashamed. I'm not embarrassed about this. Then, my favorite word in the whole text why is that my favorite word that tells me how it is that Paul was not ashamed I have to have those I I don't want to be ashamed how can I not be ashamed Paul says I'm not ashamed because tell me Paul because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. This is the key to unlock this text. I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he is able. That's how Paul could shamelessly suffer for the sake of the gospel. Paul's explaining this to Timothy and he's inviting him into this. He, he's pointing Timothy to those same spiritual resources so that he too may discover and experience God's power and grace and grace at work in him, enabling him to shamelessly suffer, to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. So, do not be ashamed, but share in suffering for the gospel. Here's the question that guides the logic of our text, and it's in your outline there. How can then a true follower of Christ Be prepared to suffer shamelessly for the gospel. Number one, know him whom you have trusted. Know him whom you have trusted. That's what Paul said was the reason for his shameless suffering. It will be ours as well. Know him whom you have trusted. If you're going to shamelessly suffer for the sake of the Gospel, you must know the God of the Gospel in whom you've trusted. You've already seen the grammatical connection. Let me show you the the spiritual connection. Let me show you what this means, how this works. Knowing God and being able. The word for knowing here Has a range of meaning and i'm going to read a bunch of them to you because i want to i want you to kind of get an idea of what this word encapsulates it means to see it's the word to see to look at to behold to perceive with the eyes and the senses to discover to observe to pay attention to to examine to inspect to experience to understand to be skilled in something and then to regard and cherish it. Why am I reciting for you all those shades of the meaning of the word no? Because I want you to see that this knowledge that Paul is speaking of, which enabled him to shamelessly suffer for the gospel, is so much more than a mere knowledge of intellect or religious interest or cultural exposure through family, through church attendance. This is a personal knowledge that Paul has of God, an experiential knowledge, an intense and intimate knowledge of God. This is a knowledge from personal discovery and examination, a knowledge from attentive observation, a knowledge that moved Paul to regard and cherish God, his Savior above all else. If we don't have that kind of knowledge of God, we won't be able to shamelessly suffer for him. Paul knew God as Savior. Think about it. He had seen him, Acts 9, on the road to, to Damascus. Seen him. He'd been humbled by him, convicted, changed, delivered. He had learned from him, Galatians 1. And right? he spent time with God learning. From him, hearing the gospel. He had been changed by him. You remember Philippians chapter 3 where Paul explains his pedigree, his his religious resume, and he says, I've counted it all loss so that I can know him and be found in him having his righteousness and not my own. He had experienced his grace and mercy and love and power. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 1 where Paul gives his testimony and says, God was patient toward me, merciful and gracious, and He changed me, and it's amazing that He would even use me. And He did so to show His amazing patience and mercy toward the chief of sinners. And because of that living knowledge of God, Paul trusted God implicitly. He had had felt the impact of being exposed to the person of God through the truth of the gospel. It's like he said, I know whom I have believed. Have believed. Have trusted. That's a a strong verb there. I have believed. This is a a verb that indicates Paul's decisively, once for all, set his trust on God. And he he will still trust Christ, no matter what, until the day he sees Him face to face. Until that day. Until the day he's with Christ. It was that kind of knowledge of God that enabled Paul to shamelessly suffer for the gospel. This is why Paul is writing to Timothy these words of of gospel exaltation. In verses 9 and 10, Timothy hadn't experienced God exactly the same way that Paul had, and neither have we. But that doesn't matter. God has still begun to reveal himself and give the kind of knowledge of himself to Timothy just as he has to every true child of God. That same kind of knowledge that we experience God and know him. We need to recognize it, value it, pursue more of his living knowledge. And that's why Paul pulls Timothy's mind and heart into this saving knowledge and experience of God in, in verses 9 to 10. Notice that Paul uses the word us us, our. And so on. Paul is not just talking about himself here. He's not just talking about how he personally experienced God. This is him. This is Timothy. This is every true child of God. We need to see the the impact of the knowledge of God through the gospel upon our lives. These verses sound so much like those sections of Paul's writing in which he is carried away in doxology. Because he's so overwhelmed at the glory of God and the gospel. Paul is joyfully proclaiming the glorious reality that we have seen the glory of God through the gospel. We've experienced this. We, if you're a child of God, you have experienced what Paul is talking about, verses 9 to 10. You need to realize it. It's like he prayed in Ephesians chapter 1 God, enlighten us to what you've done in our lives. We can know your, have your knowledge in a greater degree and understand what you have, how you have worked in us. We've experienced this salvation. We've trusted and found faithful this God of the gospel. And because this is who God is, we must decisively come to trust and cherish Him above all else. And this is why Paul was able to shamelessly suffer. And that's true for all who will desire to live a godly life in Christ. Let's look at Paul's overview of the gospel in verses 9 and 10. First, in the gospel, we see the God who saved us. What did God save us from? What did God rescue us from? God in His great saving love came and rescued us from the sentence to which we were bound. Eternal wrath of God for our sin. And God saved us from that. He he took us out of slavery to sin. Do you realize that before you came to Christ, you could do nothing but sin? Just choose your brand, right? You could do nothing but sin. Every thought, every act was selfish and, and idolatrous in some way. And now, we're delivered. We can actually walk and be pleasing to God. We can know His pleasure through Christ. He's delivered us from self-righteousness. It's such a bondage to, under, to think in your mind that, that you must please God by what you do. And to know the hopelessness and despair of that year after year after year. And the fear and the dread and the doubt that comes of being bound to self-righteousness. And God came and He saved us from that. And He showed us that His righteousness is sufficient. He gave us the faith to trust in Christ alone. He saved us. Think of the work of the Spirit that opened your mind to it. How many cannot understand it, cannot grasp it. Not that they cannot understand the words on the page, but they do not understand the, the humility of it, the self-debasement the self of it, that they need Christ. That's an that's understanding that only Spirit can give. He saved us. I think of Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, where we read that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were, we were children of wrath. We were bound to follow the way of the world in selfish, worldly ambition. But God, being rich in mercy for the great love with which He loved us, even though we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. If we could only see the greatness of spiritual resurrection, how much it would move our hearts to love and trust this God who saved us. And that's what Paul prays, that we would see it more and more. Titus 3, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His great mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. He saved us. He called us. He didn't just save us from the sentence of sin and slavery to sin and self-righteousness he then moves us ahead into a glorious calling you see he called us he called us we were summoned to Christ we were convicted of sin we were convinced of the truth and were summoned to Christ notice what it says to a a holy calling a holy calling He called us so that we can become holy. Do you realize what salvation is all about? Salvation is God rescuing a people who were doomed to exist in eternity apart from His glorious love. Apart from enjoying Him forever and bringing Him glory. And now He's pulling us out of all that doomed us to that endless torture. And now He's giving us Himself again. He's telling us to come and enjoy Him as He is in His glory. And to do that, He has to make us holy. So it's, it's all the way through. He's, he's bringing us to a holy calling that we will be able to stand before the God who is called holy, holy, holy. And to know Him and enjoy Him as we are forever. It's a holy calling. Romans 8, 28-30. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. And then He justifies us and calls us. He summons us to believe the gospel. He justifies us. He glorifies us so that one day we can stand before Him like His Son and enjoy His love forever. It's a holy calling. It's a holy calling. God, He gives us grace. So he, He saved us. He called us. And notice, none of this happens because of our works but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us. He gives it. It's free. It's a gift. No good work or anything else from us initiated this calling to salvation, to enjoy God forever in holiness. Do you realize that? That wasn't you. That wasn't your choice. You didn't even want it. You loved your sin and so did I. And God said, I will have that one for myself. I will cause them to enjoy my love forever and bring glory to myself through them. He chose us. He gave us this. It wasn't our works. It wasn't, his, it wasn't our doing. It was His own purpose and grace. No, and we know this is true because it says that He gave it to us, not on our goodness and our merit, but in Christ by uniting us to Christ. And giving us all the riches of salvation through Christ. Christ's life and death and resurrection. And our union with Him gives us all that saving power and work. So that we are raised with Christ and are treated as if we were Christ by the Father. And when did, when did God do that? Before the, world, before the ages began. We know it wasn't us. We weren't there. We were only in the knowledge of God. It was His doing from the very beginning. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast, but you're His workmanship now, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He has prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And you know what? God God accomplished all that He said He would to bring about our salvation When He made manifest His grace, He gave us this grace in Christ. And that grace is now manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God brought it all about. How? By sending His Son. That's how He brought about His his gracious purpose. That's how He was able to call us and save us apart from our works In the manifestation of Christ, He unveiled His saving plan when He sent the Son, the eternal second person of of the Trinity, became man, took on human nature, took on the nature of a servant, lived under the law of God to earn our righteousness, obeyed the Father perfectly, even to the point of death, and even death on a cross. Jesus did all this. He did all this. I think of Titus chapter 2 in verses 11 through 14 speaks like this. Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared. What does he mean by that? Christ, right? Christ came and He was full of grace and truth. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great god and savior jesus christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works the appearing of christ brought all this about and notice God, he's the God who saved, he's the God who called us, he's the God who gave us grace, he's the God who revealed grace in Christ. He's also through that work of Christ, he's the God who abolished death. Isn't this a fantastic phrase? Jesus Christ who abolished death. What does that mean? Abolished death. You know, there's three kinds of death. There's physical death, the departure of the soul from the body. There's spiritual death, the soul's deadness to God. And there's eternal death, endless separation from the love of God, endless presence of God's just wrath against our sin. And through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, all three of those were abolished. It doesn't mean they were removed because we still die physically, what it means is they were rendered powerless. For the believer in Christ, for those who are saved and called, Christ rendered death, abolished, useless, powerless for you. You will never experience one second of eternal death. For you who are in Christ, the Scripture says over you that the second death has no and You now are no longer one who is dead spiritually because you've been called to life. There's two kinds of death rendered absolutely useless against you. And physical death? What is physical death for the believer now? Is that a threat? Its sting has been removed. It's, it's a scorpion without a tail because of the victory of Christ. For us, like Paul said, death is what? Gain, because we're with Christ. Death causes us to lose nothing but the body that we want to get rid of anyway, right? It's gain, it's gain. And God abolished death through Christ and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, spiritual life, eternal life, life with God, life that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, life that does not end. I think of the glorious text in First in Corinthians chapter 15, the last eight verses. I tell you this, brothers: flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This body, this perishable body must put on an imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Look at what God has done for us in the gospel through Christ. Look what He has done for us from Himself. Saved us, called us, given us grace, revealed grace through Christ, abolished death for us, and brought to us life and immortality. Does that thrill you? Does that grip you? What have you been given in Christ? Does it stir your heart for God who gave this to you? What's Paul's point? When you understand what God has done for you in the gospel, you will be utterly moved by it if you have been changed by it when you experience the saving work of God as described in these words, you will be altered. How can you not be? When God is at work like this in your life and He has revealed Himself to you as a great Savior, you will come then to trust Him. If this God, just like Jesus said, He's a good shepherd and he lays his life down, if he laid his life down for you, if he earned your righteousness, if he called you to life spiritually, if he chose you, even though you were the last person to deserve it, if he did all this, abolished death and gave you life immortal, can you not trust him with a few moments in your life when you may have to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Is he not trustworthy? And do you not love him for it? You will love Him. You will trust Him more than anything else. So that when it comes time to suffer for the sake of the gospel, you'll be strengthened, you'll be enabled by that divinely given trust and love toward God to share in the suffering. You'll want to share in the suffering. You won't want to deny this or quiet down about this. This is your life. This is your love. This is your God and Savior. Think of what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, 10 through 13. Notice. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, Paul said, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Just just think about that verse. Paul is just, this is overwhelming stuff. He is willing to endure everything for the sake of the elect in order to get the gospel message to them. Everything. Paul's like, bring it on, whatever. God will sustain me through it. I must do these three missionary journeys. I must get the gospel to everyone whom God has chosen for me to do so. So that they can obtain the salvation that is in Christ with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, We'll live with him. Right? There's Paul's hope right there. That's the end of the gospel. Death has no sting. We have died with him. We'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. It's like hurry and get me there. Right? That If we deny him, he will deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. We're not going to talk about that text today. Just We'll tuck it away for later. But what a call to faithfully share in suffering for Christ. This is the God of the gospel according to Paul's knowledge. Verses 9 and 10. He experienced personally and powerfully this God. With this kind of knowledge and experience of God, was Paul about to deny God and the gospel? Would he he have even considered it? Not a chance. How could he deny this message? How could he deny God? Thinking of what God had done for him. What God had done to death. For him, How could he give up this gospel? How could he throw it all away and prove himself to be a false follower of Christ, a castaway, as he called it, right? In 1 Corinthians 9. How could he prove himself to be that? In Paul's estimation, he would lose far more by throwing the gospel away than by clinging to the gospel and suffering a few short earthly losses, right? For him, it was... So clear. Look at how he wrote in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verse 16-18. through So we do not lose heart, Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient. But the things that are things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's heart is so filled with gratitude and love and joy and freedom and confidence and trust from this kind of knowledge of God in the gospel. Do you see the connection? If you know this and you've experienced it and God has worked in you, it will enable you to be free and love and trust God even in the moment of suffering as well. Paul points Timothy and all of his readers to the same powerful love for God and trust in God through knowledge of God in the gospel. That's why he said, I know whom I have believed. Now, this is not to say that a true child of God will never falter in shame, right? Right? I can't say that. Peter faltered, didn't he? And Christ restored him lovingly. And remember what he asked him. Peter, do you what? Do you love me? That's the issue. If you know him, in whom you've trusted, like Paul is talking about here, and you've experienced him, you will love him so that you won't you won't be able to shamelessly de- or shamefully deny him. Thomas Cranmer faltered, you know, the, that English Puritan. Such pressure came upon him from, from Mary, Queen of Scots, and he signed in private a recantation of the Protestant Reformation. And then he was required to publicly talk about that. And before he got to that public proclamation of his own recantation, he recanted his recantation. He couldn't do it, and he put his hand in those flames first, right? The hand that signed that recantation. You see, that's what what God does. If a true child of God does falter and fold in shame, denying the gospel rather than suffering shamelessly for it, Christ will graciously and lovingly restore them, just like he did Peter. We should expect that. He will mature their love and trust toward him. They will come to be more ashamed of their denial than they are to speak the gospel. That's what God does for the faltering child of his. So, dear brother and sister in Christ, do you know him whom you have trusted like Paul's talking about here? Are you so gripped with the knowledge of God and the gospel That you can shamelessly speak the gospel and share in suffering. Has the knowledge of God so gripped your affections? Has the experience of God in your salvation transformed you so that you love God for it? Do you trust God because of the work of the gospel and you know that it will not fail you even in suffering, even in death for the sake of the gospel? Do you trust God because of who He is and how He has revealed Himself to you in His saving work? We will not be able to suffer shamelessly for the gospel unless we have this kind of loyal love and tenacious trust toward God that comes only from having a personal, intimate, experiential, life-changing knowledge of God through the gospel. I think that's what Paul is saying here. I know whom I believed. Do you see? Well, how do we acquire that? I'll save my second point for next week. How do we acquire that? We'll just close with this. How do we get that kind of knowledge that so grips us And changes us and makes us shameless because we're so filled with love. You're not ashamed to defend someone you love. In fact, you're glad about it. That's that's the way we are reflecting the nature of God. Well, all I can say is God gives it. There's no recipe for this, right? God must give it to you. He must give it to all of us. This isn't something mystical, but something real. He gives it to us through salvation. He gives it to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. He gives it to us through the scriptures. He gives it to us through trials and testing and discipline and training. So if you want it, seek for it with all of your heart. Ask God for it. Search for it through prayer and study of the word and study of the gospel and expect God to give it to you through Stripping you of yourself and giving you himself in return. Let your greatest passion and pursuit in life be to know God just as Paul said, for example, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to him even in death. Do you want that? you want that kind of knowledge of God and fellowship with God? Do not be ashamed of the gospel, but share in suffering for the gospel. Believe it, live it, speak it. How do we do that? You have to know Him in whom you have believed. And secondly, to be convinced of His power but we'll look at that next week. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, again we ask You, take us beyond where we are. Take us into a different way of living to be people who are identified with Christ, identified with His name, with his message to speak the gospel, to live the gospel. In, in so doing, we will share in suffering. And so, Father, prepare us for that by having such a, a living, transforming, growing knowledge of you and your saving work in us through the gospel that, that we cannot be shameful of you. Father, we, we, we are learning to trust You as we grow in the gospel, in the knowledge of the gospel, and what You have given to us so graciously. If we have the gospel, we have life and immortality. So how could we fear suffering? Nothing can keep us from You. Death only brings us to You. Father, prepare us for that day when we are called to give the message of the gospel and experience mistreatment. Help us to think of this text. Infuse into our hearts through your spirit a love for you that will not deny you, a trust in you that that will not fail to depend upon you. Give us this, Father. And if there is someone here this morning that does not know you, they don't have this knowledge of you, that they would hear the gospel spoken this morning and want to be made alive in Christ. They would want death to be rendered useless for them. May they come to Christ as a humble child. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.